Welcome. You are listening to Genesius Guild's classic drama on the air. This is your host, Misha Hooker, bringing you an hour of audio-only theater. The Genesius Guild is a Quad Cities institution. Founded in 1956 by Don Wooten, the Guild has been producing classic theater every summer since then. Our normal core programming is live theater outdoors in Lincoln Park next to Augustana College. All our performances are free to the public, and our organization welcomes newcomers both as audience and as participants. Although we had to cancel our planned 2020 season because of the COVID-19 crisis, if all goes according to plan, we will be back on stage in the summer of 2021. For more information on our past, present, and future, see the Genesius Guild website, genesius.org. Today's presentation is the first in our ongoing series of classic modern British theatre. George Bernard Shaw is a universally acknowledged classic playwright in the modern British theatre. Genesius Guild has repeatedly staged two favourites over the years, The Dark Lady of the Sonnets, most recently in 2001, and Don Juan in Hell, most recently in 2012. Shaw's prefaces and wit are as celebrated as his stagecraft, and we would be remiss if we did not treat you to some excerpts before the main event today. First, in a preface to his publication of three plays identified as unpleasant, Shaw gives his own account of how he got started as a writer, as follows. There is an old saying that if a man has not fallen in love before 40, he had better not fall in love after. I long ago perceived that this rule applied to many other matters as well, for example, to the writing of plays. And I made a rough memorandum for my own guidance that unless I could produce at least half a dozen plays before I was 40, I had better let playwriting alone. It was not so easy to comply with this provision as might be supposed, not that I lacked the dramatist's gift. As far as that is concerned, I have encountered no limit but my own laziness to my power of conjuring up imaginary people in imaginary places and making up stories about them in the natural scenic form which has given rise to that curious human institution, the theatre. But in order to obtain a livelihood by my gift, I must have conjured so as to interest not only my own imagination, but that of at least some seventy or a hundred thousand contemporary London playgoers. To fulfill this condition was hopelessly out of my power. I had no taste for what is called popular art, no respect for popular morality, no belief in popular religion, no admiration for popular heroics. As an Irishman, I could pretend to patriotism neither for the country I had abandoned nor the country that had ruined it. As a humane person, I detested violence and slaughter, whether in war, sport, or the butcher's yard. I was a socialist, detesting our anarchical scramble for money and believing in equality as the only possible permanent basis of social organization, discipline, subordination, good manners, and selection of fit persons for high functions. Fashionable life, though open on very specially indulgent terms to unencumbered brilliant persons, brilliancy was my specialty, I could not endure, even if I had not feared the demoralizing effect of its wicked wastefulness, its impenitent robbery of the poor, and its vulgarity on a character which required looking after as much as my own. 
I was neither a skeptic nor a cynic in these matters. I simply understood life differently from the average respectable man. And as I certainly enjoyed myself more, mostly in ways which would have made him unbearably miserable, I was not splenetic over our variance. Judge, then, how impossible it was for me to write fiction that should delight the public. In my knownage I had tried to obtain a foothold in literature by writing novels, and did actually produce five long works in that form, without getting further than an encouraging compliment or two from the most dignified of the London and American publishers, who unanimously declined to venture their capital upon me. Now it is clear that a novel cannot be too bad to be worth publishing, provided it is a novel at all, and not merely an ineptitude. It certainly is possible for a novel to be too good to be worth publishing, but I pledge my credit as a critic that this was not the case with mine. I might have explained the matter by saying with Waitley, these silly people don't know their own silly business, and indeed, when these novels of mine did subsequently blunder into type to fill up gaps in socialist magazines financed by generous friends, one or two specimens took shallow root like weeds and tripped me up from time to time to this day. But I was convinced that the publisher's view was commercially sound by getting just then a clue to my real condition from a friend of mine, a physician who had devoted himself especially to ophthalmic surgery. He tested my eyesight one evening and informed me that it was quite uninteresting to him because it was normal, quote-unquote. I naturally took this to mean that it was like everybody else's, but he rejected this construction as paradoxical and hastened to explain to me that I was an exceptional and highly fortunate person optically, normal sight conferring the power of seeing things accurately and being enjoyed by only about 10% of the population, the remaining 90% being abnormal. I immediately perceived the explanation of my want of success in fiction. My mind's eye, like my body's, was normal. It saw things differently from other people's eyes, and saw them better. This revelation produced a considerable effect on me. At first it struck me that I might live by selling my works to the ten percent who were like myself, but a moment's reflection showed me that these would all be as penniless as myself, and that we could not live by, so to speak, taking in one another's washing. How to earn my bread by my pen was then the problem. Had I been a practical, common-sense, money-loving Englishman, the matter would have been easy enough. I should have put on a pair of abnormal spectacles and abhorred my vision to the liking of the 90% of potential book buyers. But I was so prodigiously self-satisfied with my superiority, so flattered by my abnormal normality, that the resource of hypocrisy never occurred to me. Better see rightly on a pound a week than squint on a million. The question was how to get the pound a week. The matter, once I gave up writing novels, was not so very difficult. Every despot must have one disloyal subject to keep him sane. Even Louis XI had to tolerate his confessor standing for the eternal against the temporal throne. Democracy has now handed the scepter of the despot to the sovereign people, but they too must have their confessor, whom they call critic. Criticism is not only medicinally salutary, it has positive popular attractions in its cruelty, its gladiatorship, and the gratification its attacks on the great give to envy, and its praises to enthusiasm. 
It may say things which many would like to say, but dare not, and indeed for want of skill could not, even if they durst. Its iconoclasms, seditions, and blasphemies, if well turned, tickle those whom they shock, so that the critic adds the privileges of the court jester to those of the confessor. Garrick, had he called Dr. Johnson punch, would have spoken profoundly and wittily, whereas Dr. Johnson, in hurling that epithet at him, was but picking up the cheapest sneer an actor is subject to. It was as punch, then, that I emerged from obscurity. All I had to do was to open my normal eyes and, with my utmost literary skill, put the case exactly as it struck me, or describe the thing exactly as I saw it, to be applauded as the most humorously extravagant paradoxer in London. The only reproach with which I became familiar was the everlasting, Why can you not be serious? Soon my privileges were enormous, and my wealth immense. I had a prominent place reserved for me on a prominent journal every week to say my say, as if I were the most important person in the kingdom. My pleasing toil was to inspect all the works of fine art that the capital of the world can attract to its exhibitions, its opera house, its concerts, and its theaters. The classes patiently read my essays, the masses patiently listened to my harangues. I enjoyed the immunities of impecuniosity with the opportunities of a millionaire. If ever there was a man without a grievance, I was that man. Shaw called this set of plays unpleasant because he thought they brought unpleasant contemporary issues to the attention of the audience. Notoriously, he was thus constantly in danger of censorship, like some illustrious forebears, as he explains in this later excerpt from the same preface. In 1737, the greatest dramatist, with the single exception of Shakespeare, produced by England between the Middle Ages and the 19th century, Henry Fielding, devoted his genius to the task of exposing and destroying parliamentary corruption then at its height. Walpole, unable to govern without corruption, promptly gagged the stage by a censorship which is in full force at the present moment. Fielding, driven out of the trade of Moliere and Aristophanes, took to that of Cervantes, and since then the English novel has been one of the glories of literature, whilst the English drama has been its disgrace. The extinguisher which Walpole dropped on Fielding descends on me in the form of the Queen's Reader of Plays, a gentleman who robs, insults, and suppresses me as irresistibly as if he were the Tsar of Russia and I the meanest of his subjects. The robbery takes the form of making me pay him two guineas for reading every play of mine that exceeds one act in length. I do not want him to read it, at least officially, personally, he is welcome. On the contrary, I strenuously resent that impertinence on his part, but I must submit in order to obtain from him an insolent and insufferable document which I cannot read without boiling of the blood, certifying that in his opinion, his opinion, my play, quote, does not in its general tendency contain anything immoral or otherwise improper for the stage, unquote, and that the Lord Chamberlain therefore allows its performance confound his impudence. 
In spite of this document, he still retains his right as an ordinary citizen to prosecute me or instigate some other citizen to prosecute me for an outrage on public morals if he should change his mind later on. Besides, if he really protects the public against my immorality, why does not the public pay him for the service? The policeman does not look to the thief for his wages, but to the honest man whom he protects against the thief. And yet, if I refuse to pay, this tyrant can practically ruin any manager who produces my play in defiance of him. If, having been paid, he is afraid to license the play, that is, if he is more afraid of the clamor of the opponents of my opinions than of their supporters, then he can suppress it and impose a mulct of fifty pounds on everybody who takes part in a representation of it, from the gas man to the principal tragedian, and there is no getting rid of him. Since he lives not at the expense of the taxpayer, but by blackmailing the author, no political party would gain ten votes by abolishing him. Private political influence cannot touch him. For such private influence, moving only at the promptings of individual benevolence to individuals, makes nice little places to job nice little people into instead of doing away with them. Nay, I myself, though I know that the Queen's reader of plays is necessarily an odious and mischievous official, and that I myself, if I were appointed to his post, which I shall probably apply for some day, could no more help being odious and mischievous than a ramrod could if it were stuck into the wheels of a steam engine, am loath to stir up the question lest the press, having now lost all tradition of liberty and being able to conceive no alternative to a Queen's reader of plays, but a county council's reader, or some other seven-headed devil to replace the one-headed one, should make the remedy worse than the disease. Thus I cling to the censorship as many radicals cling to the House of Lords or the throne, or as domineering women marry weak and amiable men who only desire a quiet life and whose judgment nobody respects, rather than masterful men. Until the nation is prepared to establish freedom of the stage on the same terms as we now enjoy freedom of the press, by allowing the dramatist and manager to perform anything they please and take the consequence as authors and editors do, I shall cherish the court reader as the apple of my eye. I once thought of organizing a petition of right from all the managers and authors to the Prime Minister, but as it was obvious that nine out of ten of these victims of oppression far from daring to offend their despot, would promptly extol him as the most salutary of English institutions, and spread themselves with unctuous flattery on the perfectly irrelevant question of his estimable personal character, I abandoned the notion. What is more, many of them, in taking this course, would be pursuing a sound business policy, since the managers and authors to whom the existing system has brought success have not only no incentive to change it for another which would expose them to wider competition, but have, for the most part, the greatest dread of the new ideas, which the abolition of the censorship would let loose on the stage, and so long live the Queen's reader of plays. In 1893, the obnoxious post was occupied by a gentleman, now deceased, whose ideas had, in the course of nature, become quite obsolete. He was openly hostile to the new movement, and declared before a royal commission his honest belief that the reputation of Ibsen in England was a spurious product of a system of puffery initiated by Mr. William Archer with the corrupt object of profiting by translations of his works. In dealing with him, Mr. Grain was at a heavy disadvantage, 
Without a license, Mrs. Warren's profession could only be performed in some building not a theater, and therefore not subject to reprisals from the Lord Chamberlain. The audience would have to be invited as guests only, so that the support of the public paying money at the doors, a support with which the independent theater could not afford to dispense, was out of the question. To apply for a license was to court a practically certain refusal, entailing the fifty pounds penalty on all concerned in any subsequent performance whatever. The deadlock was complete. The play was ready, the independent theater was ready. Two actresses, Mrs. Theodore Wright and Miss Janet Achurch, whose creations of Mrs. Alving in Ghosts and Nora in A Doll's House had stamped them as the best in the new style in England, were ready. But the mere existence of the censorship, without any action or knowledge of the play on its part, was sufficient to paralyze all these forces. So I threw Mrs. Warren's profession, too, aside, and, like another fielding, closed my career as playwright, in ordinary, to the independent theater. Fortunately, though the stage is bound, the press is free. And even if the stage were free, nonetheless would it be necessary to publish plays as well as perform them. Had the two performances of Widower's Houses achieved by Mr. Grain been multiplied by fifty, nay, had the philanderer and Mrs. Warren's profession been so adapted to the taste of the general public as to have run as long as Charlie's aunt, they would still have remained mere titles to those who either dwell out of reach of a theater or, as a matter of habit, prejudice, comfort, health, or age, abstain altogether from playgoing. And then there are the people who have a really high standard of dramatic work, who read with delight all the classic dramatists from Aeschylus to Ibsen, but who only go to the theater on the rare occasions when they are offered a play by an author whose work they have already learnt to value as literature, or a performance by an actor of the first rank. Even our habitual playgoers would be found on investigation to have no true habit of playgoing. If on any night at the busiest part of the theatrical season in London, the audiences were cordoned by the police and examined individually as to their views on the subject, there would probably not be a single house-owning native among them who would not conceive a visit to the theater, or indeed to any public assembly, artistic or political, as an exceptional way of spending an evening the normal English way being to sit in separate families, in separate rooms, in separate houses, each person silently occupied with a book, a paper, or a game of Halma cut off equally from the blessings of society and solitude. The household isolation Shaw attributes to the English character we find renewed in these COVID-19 times, sadly. The remedy for Shaw's time was for the plays to be printed and sold in addition to being staged. One remedy for our own time is precisely this current venue, the audio drama. As a final example of Shaw's preface writing, we now turn to the preface published with today's main event, How He Lied to Her Husband. His mind is very much still on the issue of censorship and topical issues as he returns again and again to his notorious Mrs. Warren's profession to explain something about the origins of this small piece. Like many other works of mine, this playlet is a pièce d'occasion. In 1905, it happened that Mr. Arnold Daly, who was then playing the part of Napoleon in The Man of Destiny in New York, 
found that whilst the play was too long to take a secondary place in the evening's performance, it was too short to suffice by itself. I therefore took advantage of four days' continuous rain during a holiday in the north of Scotland to write how he lied to her husband, poor Mr. Daly. In his hands it served its turn very effectively. I print it here as a sample of what can be done with even the most hackneyed stage framework by filling it in with an observed touch of actual humanity instead of with doctrinaire romanticism. Nothing in the theater is staler than the situation of husband, wife, and lover, or the fun of knockabout farce. I have taken both and got an original play out of them, as anybody else can if only he will look about him for his material, instead of plagiarizing Othello and the thousand plays that have proceeded on Othello's romantic assumptions and false point of honor. A further experiment made by Mr. Arnold Daly with this play is worth recording. In 1905, Mr. Daly produced Mrs. Warren's profession in New York. The press of that city instantly raised a cry that such persons as Mrs. Warren are ordure and should not be mentioned in the presence of decent people. This hideous repudiation of humanity and social conscience so took possession of the New York journalists that the few among them who kept their feet morally and intellectually could do nothing to check the epidemic of foul language, gross suggestion, and raving obscenity of word and thought that broke out. The writers abandoned all self-restraint under the impression that they were upholding virtue instead of outraging it. They infected each other with their hysteria until they were, for all practical purposes, indecently mad. They finally forced the police to arrest Mr. Daly and his company, and led the magistrate to express his loathing of the duty thus forced upon him of reading an unmentionable and abominable play. Of course, the convulsion soon exhausted itself. The magistrate, naturally somewhat impatient when he found that what he had to read was a strenuously ethical play forming part of a book which had been in circulation unchallenged for eight years, and had been received without protest by the whole London and New York press, gave the journalists a piece of his mind as to their moral taste in plays. By consent, he passed the case on to a higher court, which declared that the play was not immoral, acquitted Mr. Daly, and made an end of the attempt to use the law to declare living women to be order, and thus enforce silence as to the far-reaching fact that you cannot cheapen women in the market for industrial purposes without cheapening them for other purposes as well. I hope Mrs. Warren's profession will be played everywhere, in season and out of season, until Mrs. Warren has bitten that fact into the public conscience and shamed the newspapers which support a tariff to keep up the price of every American commodity except American manhood and womanhood. Unfortunately, Mr. Daly had already suffered the usual fate of those who direct public attention to the profits of the sweater or the pleasures of the voluptuary. He was morally lynched side by side with me. Months elapsed before the decision of the courts vindicated him, and even then, since his vindication implied the condemnation of the press, which was by that time sober again and ashamed of its orgy, his triumph received a rather sulky and grudging publicity. 
In the meantime, he had hardly been able to approach an American city, including even those cities which had heaped applause on him as the defender of hearth and home when he produced Candida, without having to face articles discussing whether mothers could allow their daughters to attend such plays as You Never Can Tell, written by the infamous author of Mrs. Warren's Profession, and acted by the monster who produced it. What made this harder to bear was that though no fact is better established in theatrical business than the financial disastrousness of moral discredit, the journalists, who had done all the mischief, kept paying Vice the homage of assuming that it is enormously popular and lucrative, and that I and Mr. Daly, being exploiters of Vice, must therefore be making colossal fortunes out of the abuse heaped on us, and had in fact provoked it and welcomed it with that express object. Ignorance of real life could hardly go further. One consequence was that Mr. Daly could not have kept his financial engagements or maintained his hold on the public had he not accepted engagements to appear for a season in the vaudeville theatres, the American equivalent of our music halls, where he played how he lied to her husband, comparatively unhampered by the press censorship of the theatre, or by that sophistication of the audience through press suggestion from which I suffer more, perhaps, than any other author. Vaudeville authors are fortunately unknown. The audiences see what the play contains and what the actor can do, not what the papers have told them to expect. Success under such circumstances had a value both for Mr. Daly and myself, which did something to console us for the very unsavory mobbing which the New York press organized for us, and which was not the less disgusting because we suffered in a good cause and in the very best company. Mr. Daly, having weathered the storm, can perhaps shake his soul free of it as he heads for fresh successes with younger authors, but I have certain sensitive places in my soul. I do not like that word, ordure. Apply it to my work and I can afford to smile, since the world on the whole will smile with me. But to apply it to the woman in the street, whose spirit is of one substance with our own and her body no less holy, to look your womenfolk in the face afterwards and not go out and hang yourself, that is not on the list of pardonable sins. As Shaw has mentioned, his little play was a parody version of a longer play of Shaw's that had caused a scandal and a sensation, Candida. Just as the guardians of morals suspected might happen in real life, in Shaw's short piece, he imagines a love affair prompted, even licensed, in the minds of the participants by the love triangle at the focus of Candida. As in the longer play, a young poet in love disrupts the domestic stability of the married couple. As in the longer play, the woman stays with her husband in the end. But Shaw has, of course, put his own characteristic witty spin on his own sillier version of his own ideas. In this presentation, she, the wife, is played by Sarah Willey. He, the poet, is played by Jack Bevins. Her husband is played by John Wright. And the narrator is Molly Schmelzer. We had no professional studio equipment, and because of COVID-19 and social distancing, everyone recorded themselves at home with whatever equipment they could find but we are more than pleased to be presenting this drama to you. And now, without further ado, we bring you 
How He Lied to Her Husband. It is eight o'clock in the evening. The curtains are drawn and the lamps lighted in the drawing room of her flat in Cromwell Road. Her lover, a beautiful youth of 18, in evening dress and cape, with a bunch of flowers and an opera hat in his hands, comes in alone. The door is near the corner, and as he appears in the doorway, he has the fireplace on the nearest wall to his right, and the grand piano along the opposite wall to his left. Near the fireplace, a small ornamental table has on it a hand mirror, a fan, a pair of long white gloves, and a little white woolen cloud to wrap a woman's head in. On the other side of the room, near the piano, is a broad, square, softly upholstered stool. The room is furnished in the most approved South Kensington fashion. That is, it is as like a showroom as possible and is intended to demonstrate the racial position and spending powers of its owners, and not in the least to make them comfortable. He is, be it repeated, a very beautiful youth, moving as in a dream, walking as on air. He puts his flowers down carefully on the table beside the fan, takes off his cape, and as there is no room on the table for it, takes it to the piano, puts his hat on the cape, crosses to the hearth, looks at his watch, picks it up again, and notices the things on the table, lights up as if he saw heaven opening before him, goes to the table and takes the cloud in both hands, nestling his nose into its softness and kissing it, kisses the gloves one after another, kisses the fan, gasps a long, shuddering sigh of ecstasy, sits down on the stool and presses his hands to his eyes to shut out reality and dream a little, takes his hands down and shakes his head with a little smile of rebuke for his folly, catches sight of a speck of dust on his shoes and hastily and carefully brushes it off with his handkerchief, rises and takes the hand mirror from the table to make sure of his tie with the gravest anxiety and is looking at his watch again when she comes in, much flustered. As she is dressed for the theater, has spoilt petted ways, and wears many diamonds, she has an air of being a young and beautiful woman. But as a matter of hard fact, she is, dress and pretensions apart, a very ordinary South Kensington female of about 37, hopelessly inferior in physical and spiritual distinction to the beautiful youth who hastily puts down the mirror as she enters. At last! Henry, something dreadful has happened. What's the matter? I have lost your poems! They were unworthy of you. I will write you some more. No, thank you. Never any more poems for me. Oh, how could I have been so mad, so rash, so imprudent? Thank heaven for your madness, your rashness, your imprudence. Oh, be sensible, Henry. Can't you see what a terrible thing this is for me? Suppose anybody finds these poems. What will they think? They will think that a man once loved a woman more devotedly than ever a man has loved a woman before. But they will not know what man it was. What good is that to me if everybody will know what woman it was? But how will they know? How will they know? Why, my name is all over them. My silly, unhappy name. Oh, if I had only been christened Mary Jane, or Gladys Muriel, or Beatrice, or Francesca, or Guinevere, or something quite common. But Aurora, Aurora, I'm the only Aurora in London, and everybody knows it. I believe I'm the only Aurora in the world. And it's so horribly easy to rhyme to it. 
Oh, Henry, why didn't you try to restrain your feelings a little in common consideration for me? Why didn't you write with some little reserve? Write poems to you with reserve? You ask me that? Yes, dear. Of course, it was very nice of you. And I know it was my own fault as much as yours. I ought to have noticed that your verses ought never to have been addressed to a married woman. Ah, how I wish they had been addressed to an unmarried woman. How I wish they had. Indeed, you have no right to wish anything of the sort. They are quite unfit for anybody but a married woman. That's just the difficulty. What will my sisters-in-law think of them? Have you got sisters-in-law? Yes, of course I have. Do you suppose I'm an angel? I do. Heaven help me. I do, or I did, or... <laughs> she softens and puts her hand caressingly on his shoulder. Listen to me, dear. It's very nice of you to live with me in a dream, and to love me, and so on. But I can't help my husband having disagreeable relatives, can I? Uh, of, of course. They're your husband's relatives. I forgot that. Forgive me, Aurora. He takes her hand from his shoulder and kisses it. She sits down on the stool. He remains near the table, with his back to it, smiling fatuously down at her. The fact is, Teddy's got nothing but relatives. He has eight sisters and six half-sisters and ever so many brothers. But I don't mind his brothers. Now, if you only knew the least little thing about the world, Henry, you'd know that in a large family, though the sisters quarrel with one another like mad all the time, Yet let one of the brothers marry, and they all turn on their unfortunate sister-in-law and devote the rest of their lives with perfect unanimity to persuading him that his wife is unworthy of him. They can do it to her very face without her knowing it, because there are always a lot of stupid, low family jokes that nobody understands but themselves. Half the time, you can't tell what they're talking about. It just drives you wild. There ought to be a law against a man's sister ever entering his house after he's married as I'm certain as that I'm sitting here that Georgina stole those poems out of my workbox. She will not understand them, I think. Oh, won't she? She'll understand them only too well. She'll understand more harm than ever was in them. Nasty, vulgar-minded cat. Oh, don't. Don't think of people in that way. Don't think of her at all. He takes her hand and sits down on the carpet at her feet. Aurora... Do you remember the evening when I sat here at your feet and read you those poems for the first time? I shouldn't have let you. I see that now. Oh, when I think of Georgina sitting there at Teddy's feet and reading them to him for the first time, I feel I shall just go distracted. Yes, you are right. It will be a profanation. Oh, I don't care about the profanation. But what will Teddy think? What will he do? She suddenly throws his head away from her knee. You don't seem to think a bit about Teddy. She jumps up, more and more agitated. To me, Teddy is nothing. And Georgina less than nothing. You'll soon find out how much less than nothing she is. If you think a woman can't do any harm because she's only a scandal-mongering, dowdy ragbag, you're greatly mistaken. She flounces about the room. He gets up slowly and dusts his hands. Suddenly, she runs to him and throws herself into his arms. Henry, help me! Find a way out of this for me, and I'll bless you as long as you live. Oh, how wretched I am. And oh, how happy I am. Don't be selfish. Yes, I deserve that. I think if I were going to the stake with you, I should still be so happy with you that I could hardly feel your danger more than my own. Oh, you are a dear darling boy, Henry. 
But you're no use. I want somebody to tell me what to do. Your heart will tell you at the right time. I have thought deeply over this, and I know what we two must do sooner or later. No, Henry. I will do nothing improper, nothing dishonorable. She sits down plump on the stool and looks inflexible. If you did, you would no longer be Aurora. Our course is perfectly simple, perfectly straightforward, perfectly stainless and true. We love one another. I am not ashamed of that. I am ready to go out and proclaim to all of London as simply as I will declare it to your husband when you see, as you soon will see, that this is the only way honorable enough for your feet to tread. Let us go out together to our own house this evening without concealment and without shame. Remember, we owe something to your husband. We are his guests here. He is an honorable man. He has been kind to us. He has perhaps loved you as well in his prosaic nature and his sordid commercial environment permitted. We owe it to him in all honor not to let him hear the truth from the lips of a scandal monger. Let us go to him now, quietly, hand in hand, bid him farewell and walk out of the house without concealment and subterfuge, freely and honestly, in full honor and self-respect. And where shall we go to? We shall not depart by a hair's breadth from the ordinary, natural current of our lives. We were going to the theater when the loss of the poems compelled us to take action at once. We shall go to the theater still. But we shall leave your diamonds here, for we cannot afford diamonds, and we do not need them. I have told you already that I hate diamonds. Only Teddy insists on hanging me all over with them. You need not preach simplicity to me. I never thought of doing so, dearest. I know that these trivialities are nothing to you. What was I saying? Oh, yes. Instead of coming back here from the theater, you will come with me to my home, now and henceforth our home. And in due course of time, when you are divorced, we shall go through whatever idle legal ceremony you may desire. I attach no importance to the law. My love was not created in me by the law, nor can it be bound or loosed by it. That is simple enough and sweet enough, is it not? He takes the flower from the table. Here are flowers for you. I have the tickets. We will ask your husband to lend us the carriage to show that there is no malice, no grudge between us. Come! She spiritlessly takes the flowers without looking at them. Teddy isn't in yet. Well, let us take that calmly. We will go to the theater as if nothing had happened and tell him when we come back, now or three hours hence, today or tomorrow, it doesn't matter, provided all is done in honor, without shame or fear. What did you get tickets for? Lohengrin? I tried, but Lohengrin was sold out for tonight. Then what did you get? Can you ask me? What is there besides Lohengrin that we two could endure except Canada? Canada? No, I won't go to it again, Henry. It is that play that has done all the mischief. I'm very sorry I ever saw it. It ought to be stopped. Aurora! Yes, I mean it. That divinest love poem. The poem that gave us courage to speak to one another. That revealed to us what we really felt for one another. That... Just so. It put a lot of stuff into my head that I should never have dreamt of for myself. I imagined myself just like Candida. He catches her hands and looks earnestly at her. You were right. You are like Candida. Oh, stuff! And I thought you were just like Eugene. Now that I come to look at you, you are rather like him, too. She throws herself discontentedly into the nearest seat, which happens to be the bench at the piano. He goes to her. Aurora, 
If Candida had loved Eugene, she would have gone out into the night with him without a moment's hesitation. Henry, do you know what's wanting in that play? There's nothing wanting in it. Yes, there is. There's a Georgina wanting in it. If Georgina had been there to make trouble, that play would have been a true-to-life tragedy. Now I'll tell you something about it that I have never told you before. What is that? I took Teddy to it. I thought it would do him good, and so it would if I could only have kept him awake. Georgina came too, and you should have heard the way she went on about it. She said it was downright immoral, and that she knew the sort of woman that encourages boys to sit on the hearth rug and make love to her. She was just preparing Teddy's mind to poison it about me. Let us be just to Georgina, dearest. Let her deserve it first. Just to Georgina, indeed. She really sees the world in that way, and that is her punishment. How can it be her punishment when she likes it? It'll be my punishment when she brings that budget of poems to Teddy. I wish you'd have some sense and sympathize with my position a little. He goes away from the piano and begins to walk about rather testily. My dear, I really don't care about Georgina or about Teddy. All these squabbles belong to a plane on which I am, as you say, no use. I have counted the cost and I do not fear the consequences. After all, what is there to fear? Where is the difficulty? What can Georgina do? What can her husband do? What can anybody do? Do you mean to say that you propose we should just walk right bang up to Teddy and tell him we're going away together? Yes. What can be simpler? Do you think for a moment he'd stand it? Like that half-baked clergyman in the play? He'd just kill you. You don't understand these things, my darling. How could you? In one respect, I am unlike the poet in the play. I have followed the Greek ideal and not neglected the culture of my body. Your husband would make a tolerable second-rate heavyweight if he were in training and ten years younger. As it is, he could, if strung up to a great effort by a burst of passion, give a good account of himself for perhaps fifteen seconds. But I am active enough to keep out of his reach for fifteen seconds. And after that, I should simply be all over him. What do you mean by all over him? Don't ask me, dearest. At all events, I swear to you that you need not be anxious about me. And what about Teddy? Do you mean to tell me that you're going to beat Teddy before my face like a brutal prize fighter? All this alarm is needless, dearest. Believe me, nothing will happen. Your husband knows that I am capable of defending myself. Under such circumstances, nothing ever does happen. And of course, I shall do nothing. The man who once loved you is sacred to me. Doesn't he love me still? Has he told you anything? No, no. He takes her tenderly in his arms. Dearest, dearest, how agitated you are. How unlike yourself. All these worries belong to a lower plane. Come up with me to the higher one. The heights, the solitudes, the soul world. No, stop. It's no use, Mr. Apjohn. Mr. Apjohn? Excuse me. I meant Henry, of course. How could you even think of me as Mr. Apjohn? I never think of you as Mrs. Bumpus. It is always Cand... I mean, Aurora. Aurora, Aurora! Yes, yes, that's all very well, Mr. Apjohn. No, it's no use. I've suddenly begun to think of you as Mr. Apjohn. It's ridiculous to go on calling you Henry. I thought you were only a boy, a child, a dreamer. I thought you would be too much afraid to do anything. And now you want to...
beat Teddy and break up my home and disgrace me and make a horrible scandal in the papers. It's cruel, unmanly, and cowardly. Are you afraid? Oh, of course I'm afraid. So would you be if you had any common sense. She goes to the hearth, turning her back to him, and puts one tapping foot on the fender. Perfect love casteth out fear. That is why I'm not afraid. Mrs. Bumpus, you do not love me. She turns to him with a gasp of relief. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, you really can be very nice, Henry. Why do you thank me? She comes prettily to him from the fireplace. For calling me Mrs. Bumpus again. I feel now that you're going to be reasonable and behave like a gentleman. He drops on the stool, covers his face with his hand, and groans. What's the matter? Once or twice in my life, I have dreamed that I was exquisitely happy and blessed. But, oh, the misgivings, that first stir of consciousness, the stab of reality, the prison walls of the bedroom, the bitter, bitter disappointment of waking. And this time, oh, this time I thought I was awake. Listen to me, Henry. We really haven't time for all that sort of flapdoodle now. He starts to his feet as if she had pulled a trigger and straightened him by the release of a powerful spring and goes past her with a set teeth to the little table. Oh, take care. You nearly hit me in the chin with the top of your head. I beg your pardon. What is it that you want me to do? I am at your service. I am ready to behave like a gentleman if you will be kind enough to explain exactly how. Thank you, Henry. I was sure you would. You're not angry with me, are you? Go on. Go on quickly. Give me something to think about or I will... I will... He suddenly snatches up her fan and is about to break it in his clenched fists. She runs forward and catches the fan. Oh, don't break my fan! No, don't! He slowly relaxes his grip of it as she draws it anxiously out of his hands. No, really, that's a stupid trick. I don't like that. You've no right to do that. She opens the fan and finds that the sticks are disconnected. Oh, how could you be so inconsiderate? I beg your pardon. I will buy you a new one. You will never be able to match it. And it was a particular favorite of mine. Then you will have to do without it. That's all. It's not a very nice thing to say after breaking my pet fan, I think. If you knew how near I was to breaking Teddy's pet wife and presenting him with the pieces, you'd be thankful you are alive instead of... Uh, of howling about five shillings worth of ivory. Damn your fan! Oh, don't you dare swear in my presence. One would think you were my husband. He again collapses on the stool. This is some horrible dream. What has become of you? You are not my Aurora. Oh, well, if you come to that, what has become of you? Do you think I would ever have encouraged you if I had known you were such a little devil? Don't drag me down. Don't. Don't. Help me find a way back to the heights. She kneels beside him and pleads. If you would only be reasonable, Henry. If you would only remember that I am on the brink of ruin and not go on calmly saying it's all quite simple. It seems so to me. She jumps up distractedly. If you say that again, I shall do something I'll be sorry for. Here we are, standing on the edge of a frightful precipice. No doubt it's quite simple to go over and have done with it. But can't you suggest anything more agreeable? I can suggest nothing now. A chill, black darkness has fallen. I can see nothing but the ruins of our dream. He rises with a deep sigh. Can't you? Well, I can. I can see Georgina rubbing those poems into Teddy. 
And I tell you, Henry Apjohn, that you got me into this mess and you must get me out of it again. All I can say is that I am entirely at your service. What do you wish me to do? Do you know anybody else named Aurora? No. There's no use in saying no in that frozen pig-headed way. You must know some Aurora or other somewhere. You said you were the only Aurora in the world, and... He lifts his clasped fist with sudden return of his emotion. <laughs> oh, God. You were the only Aurora in the world to me. He turns away from her, hiding his face. Yes, yes, dear, of course. It's very nice of you, and I appreciate it. Indeed, I do. But it's not reasonable just at present. Now, just listen to me. I suppose you know all of those poems by heart? Yes, by heart. He raises his head and looks at her with sudden suspicion. Don't... don't you? Well, I can never remember verses. Besides, I've been so busy that I've not had the time to read them all. Though I intend to at the very first moment I can get. I promise you that most faithfully, Henry. But now try and remember very particularly. Does the name of Bumpus occur in any of the poems? No. You're quite sure. Of course I'm quite sure. How could I use such a name in a poem? Well, I don't see why not. It rhymes to rumpus, which seems appropriate enough at present. Goodness knows. However, you're a poet, and you ought to know. Uh, what does it matter now? It matters a lot, I can tell you. If there's nothing about bumpus in the poems, we can say that they were written to some other Aurora, and that you showed them to me because my name was Aurora, too. So you've got to invent another aurora for the occasion. Oh, if you wish me to tell a lie. Surely, as a man of honor, and as a gentleman, you wouldn't tell the truth, would you? Very well. You have broken my spirit and desecrated my dreams. I will lie and protest and stand on my honor. Oh, I will play the gentleman, never fear. Yes, put it all on me, of course. Don't be mean, Henry. You're quite right, Mrs. Bumpus. I beg your pardon. You must excuse my temper. I have got growing pains, I think. Growing pains? Well, the process of growing from romantic boyhood into cynical maturity usually takes 15 years. When it is compressed into 15 minutes, the pace is too fast, and growing pains are the result. Oh, is this the time for cleverness? It's settled, isn't it? That you're going to be nice and good, and that you'll brazen it out to Teddy, that you have some other aurora? Yes, I am capable of anything now. I should not have told him the truth by halves. And now I will not lie by halves. I'll wallow in the honor of a gentleman. Dearest boy, I knew you would. I... Oh, shush. She rushes to the door and holds it ajar, listening breathlessly. What is it? It's Teddy. I hear him tapping the new barometer. He can't have anything serious on his mind, or he wouldn't do that. Perhaps Georgina hasn't said anything. Try and look as if there was nothing the matter. Give me my gloves. Quick! He hands them to her. She pulls on one hastily and begins buttoning it with ostentatious unconcern. Go further away from me, quick. He walks doggedly away from her until the piano prevents his going farther. If I button my glove and you were to hum a tune, don't you think that... The tableau would be complete in its guiltiness. For heaven's sake, Mrs. Bumpus, let that glove alone. You look like a pickpocket. Her husband comes in. A robust, thick-necked, well-groomed city man with a strong chin but a blithering eye and a credulous mouth. He has a momentous air but shows no sign of displeasure. Rather the contrary. Hello! I thought you two were at the theater. I felt anxious about you, Teddy. Why didn't you come home to dinner? I got a message from Georgina. She wanted me to go to her. Poor, dear Georgina. 
I'm sorry, I, I haven't been able to call on her this last week. I hope there's nothing the matter with her? Nothing, except anxiety for my welfare and yours. She steals a terrified look at Henry. Uh, by the way, Apjohn, I should like a word with you this evening, if, if Aurora can spare you for a moment. I am at your service. No hurry, after the theater will do. Uh, we have decided not to go. Indeed. Well, then shall we adjourn to my snuggery? You needn't move. I shall go and lock up my diamonds, since I'm not going to the theater. Give me my things. For her husband hands her the cloud in the mirror. Well, we shall have more room here. He looks about him and shakes his shoulders loose. I think I should prefer plenty of room. So if it's not disturbing you, Rory? Not at all. She goes out. When the two men are alone together, Bumpus deliberately takes the poems from his breast pocket, looks at them reflectively, then looks at Henry, mutely inviting his attention. Henry refuses to understand, doing his best to look unconcerned. Do these manuscripts seem at all familiar to you, may I ask? Manuscripts? Yes. Would you like to look at them a little closer? Why, these are my poems. So, I gather. <laughs> what a shame. Mrs. Bumpus has shown them to you. Uh, you must think me an utter ass. See, I, I wrote them years ago, after reading Swinburne's songs before sunrise. Yeah, nothing would do me then, but I must reel off a set of songs to the sunrise. Aurora, you know, the rosy-fingered Aurora. They're all about Aurora. When Mrs. Bumpus told me her name was Aurora, I, I, I couldn't resist the temptation to lend them to her to read. But I didn't bargain for your unsympathetic eyes. Ah, John, that's really very ready of you. You are cut out for literature. And the day will come when Roy and I will be proud to have you about the house. I have heard far thinner stories from much older men. Do you mean to imply that you don't believe me? Do you expect me to believe you? Why not? I, I don't understand. Come! Don't underrate your own cleverness, Apjohn. I think you understand pretty well. I assure you, I'm at quite a loss. Can you not be a little more explicit? Don't overdo it, old chap. However, I will just be so far explicit as to say that if you think these poems read as if they were addressed not to a live woman, but to a shivering, cold time of day at which you are never out of bed in your life, you hardly do justice to your own literary powers, which I admire and appreciate, mind you, as much as any man. Come, own up. You wrote those poems to my wife. An internal struggle prevents Henry from answering. Of course you do. He throws the poems on the table and goes to the hearth rug where he plants himself solidly, chuckling a little and waiting for the next move. Mr. Bumpus, I pledge you my word you are mistaken. I need not tell you that Mrs. Bumpus is a lady of stainless honor who has never cast an unworthy thought on me. The, the fact that she has shown you my poems... That's not the fact. I came by them without her knowledge. She didn't show them to me. Does that not prove their perfect innocence? She would have shown them to you at once if she had taken your quite unfounded view of them. Apjohn, play fair. Don't abuse your intellectual gifts. Do you really mean that I am making a fool of myself? Believe me, you are. I assure you, on my honor as a gentleman, that I have never had the slightest feeling for Mrs. Bumpus beyond the ordinary esteem and regard of a pleasant acquaintance. Oh, indeed. He leaves the hearth and begins to approach Henry slowly looking him up and down with growing resentment. I should never have dreamt of writing poems to her. 
the thing is absurd. Why is it absurd? Well, it happens I do not admire Mrs. Bumpus in that way. Let me tell you that Mrs. Bumpus has been admired by better men than you, you soapy-headed little puppy you. There is no need to insult me like this. I assure you, on my honor as You a don't admire Mrs. Bumpus? You would never dream of writing poems to Mrs. Bumpus? My wife's not good enough for you, isn't she? Who are you, pray, that you should be so jolly superior? Mr. Bumpus, I can make allowances for your jealousy. Jealousy? Do you suppose I'm jealous of you? No, nor of ten like you, but if you think I'll stand here and let you insult my wife in her own house, you're mistaken. How can I convince you? Be reasonable. I tell you, my relations with Mrs. Bumpus are relations of perfect coldness, of indifference. Say it again. Say it again. You're proud of it, aren't you? Yeah. You're not worth kicking. Henry suddenly executes the feat known to pugilists as dipping and changes sides with Teddy, who is now between Henry and the piano. Look here. I am not going to stand this. Oh, you have some blood in your body after all. Good job. This is ridiculous. I assure you, Mrs. Bumpus is quite... What is Mrs. Bumpus to you? I'd like to know. I'll tell you what Mrs. Bumpus is. She's the smartest woman in the smartest set in South Kensington, and the handsomest and the cleverest and the most fetching to experienced men who know a good thing when they see it, whatever she may be to conceited, penny-aligning puppies who think nothing good enough for them. It's admitted by the best people, and not to know it argues yourself unknown. Three of our first actor managers have offered her a hundred a week if she'd go on the stage when they start a repertory theater. And I think they know what they're about as well as you. The only member of the president cabinet that you might call a handsome man has neglected the business of the country to dance with her, though he don't belong to our set as a regular thing. One of the first professional poets in Bedford Park wrote a sonnet to her, worth all your amateur trash. At Ascot last season, the eldest son of a duke excused himself from calling on me on the ground that his feelings for Mrs. Bumpus were not consistent with his duty to me as host. And it did him honor, and me too. But she isn't good enough for you, it seems. Oh, you regard her with coldness, with indifference, and you have the cool cheek to tell me so to my face for two Pins. I'd flatten your nose in to teach you manners. Introducing a fine woman to you is casting pearls before swine, before swine, you hear? You call me swine again and I'll land you one on the chin that'll make your head sing for a week. What? He charges at Henry with bull-like fury. Henry places himself on guard in the manner of a well-taught boxer and gets away smartly, but unfortunately forgets the stool which is just behind him. He falls backwards over it, unintentionally pushing it against the shins of Bumpus, who falls forward over it. Mrs. Bumpus, with a scream, rushes into the room between the sprawling champions and sits down on the floor in order to get her right arm around her husband's neck. You shan't, Teddy, you shan't! You'll be killed! He is a prize fighter! A prize fight him! He struggles vainly to free himself from her embrace. Henry, don't let him fight you! Promise me that you won't! I have got the most frightful bump on the back of my head. He tries to rise. She reaches out her left hand to seize his coattail and pulls him down again, 
whilst keeping fast hold of Teddy with her other hand. Not until you have promised. Not until you both have promised. Teddy tries to rise. She pulls him back again. Teddy, you promise, don't you? Yes. Yes, be good. You promise. I won't, unless he takes it back. He will. He does. You take it back, Henry, yes? Yes, I take it back. She lets go his coat. He gets up. So does Teddy. I take it all back. All, without reserve. Is nobody going to help me up? They each take a hand and pull her up. Now, won't you shake hands and be good? I shall do nothing of the sort. I have steeped myself in lies for your sake. And the only reward I get is a lump on the back of my head the size of an apple. Now I will go back to the straight path. Henry, for heaven's sake. It's no use. Your husband is a fool and a brute. What's that you say? I say you're a fool and a brute. And if you'll step outside with me, I'll say it again. Teddy begins to take off his coat for combat. Those poems were written to your wife. Every word of them and to nobody else. The scowl clears away from Bumpus' countenance. Radiant, he replaces his coat. I wrote them because I loved her. I thought her the most beautiful woman in the world. And I told her so over and over again. I adored her. Do you hear? I told her that you were a sordid commercial chump. Utterly unworthy of her. And so you are. Her husband is so gratified he can hardly believe his ears. You don't mean it. Yes, I do mean it. And a lot more, too. I asked Mrs. Bumpus to walk out of the house with me. To leave you. To get divorced from you and marry me. I begged and implored her to do it this very night. It was her refusal that ended everything between us. What she can see in you... Goodness only knows. My dear chap, why didn't you say so before? I apologize. Come, don't bear malice. Shake hands. Make him shake hands, Rory. For my sake, Henry. After all, he's my husband. Forgive him. Take his hand. Henry, dazed, lets her take his hand and place it in Teddy's. Teddy shakes it heartily. You've got to own that none of your literary heroines can touch my Rory. He turns to her and claps her with fond pride on the shoulder. Eh, Rory? They can't resist you. None of them. Never knew a man yet that could hold out three days. Don't be foolish, Teddy. I hope you were not really hurt, Henry. She feels the back of his head. He flinches. Oh, poor boy, what a bump! I must get some vinegar and brown paper. She goes to the bell and rings. Will you do me a great favor, Apjohn? I hardly like to ask, but it would be a real kindness to us both. What can I do? Her husband takes up the poems. Well, may I get these printed? It shall be done in the best style. The finest paper, sumptuous binding, everything first class. They're beautiful poems. I should like to show them about a bit. She runs back from the bell, delighted with the idea, and comes between them. Oh, Henry, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, I don't mind. I am past minding anything. I've grown too fast this evening. How old are you, Henry? This morning I was 18. Now I am... Confounded, I'm quoting that beast of a play. He takes the Canada tickets out of his pocket and tears them up viciously. What shall we call the volume? To Aurora, or something like that, eh? I should call it How He Lied to Her Husband.
This has been Genesius Guild's classic drama on the air. Join us next time for more. Many thanks to those whose contributions have made this possible. The background music was Tangled Tango by Tim Y. The theme music for the entire program was Chopin's Waltz in A-flat major, opus 69, number one, performed by Olga Gurievich. Thanks especially to the performers whose voices you have been hearing on this broadcast. Sarah Willey as she, Jack Bevins as he, John Wright as her husband, and Molly Schmelzer as the narrator. This is your host, Misha Hooker, signing off. Until next time.